0: There was a time, a time before TikTok, when the local podcaster reigned supreme, when people believed everything they read on social media. This was an age when literally any poor bastard with an iPhone and a dream likely had their own show. And in all of social media, one podcaster was more titan than the rest. However, that man also needed a day off. Yet he's one of those guys that works anyway on his day off, so he's basically calling it available. That guy's name is Dennis Kamlick, and his show is backed by popular demand with DC needing some quality time out of the hot seat. And the movie Anchorman lined up as the subject of his next episode. A new host became a critical and urgent need. A host with salon-quality hair. Timely holiday-patterned suits and a voice so nasal and regionally unspecific he could be mistaken for a young Wolf Blitzer, if Wolf had multiple bee stings around his voice box. His name is Nick Malone. He was like a god walking around an atheist convention. He's me. I'm him. And I'm hosting back by popular Demand. Because I'm in fact popularly Demanded. Let that sink in, Saratoga, New York, you bunch of hobos. Oh, my friend had to ask me.
1: I'm a Dennis Miller fan. Can't say that I listen to him now. I know he's still on the radio, but like back in the day in the late 80s, early 90s, when he was sort of a big deal on SNL and he did the Weekend Update, I was a big fan of him. And he did a couple of concerts and he did. uh, I think they're like these two HBO specials. And the second one, uh, he, he did it in black and white. And he comes out, and his hair was a little bit shorter. Remember how he used to have like the long hair, right? Long,
0: the long flowing uh, lettuce there on his head. So he comes out in this in
1: this set in the second the second maybe like a year. It was like a year or two after the first one, and the first one's hilarious. So this one's good too. He comes out, and he's, he's black and white. He's, his hair is just a little bit shorter, and he comes out, and he's like, and I don't do a good Miller, but I'll try. <laughs> like he's like I. I told a person cutting my hair that I wanted to look like Potsy from Happy Days, and a fucking kid ran with it, and, and everybody just starts laughing because I think his, his hair was too short, right? Right. So how I feel about that line is how I feel about giving you the reins tonight when I first reached out to you, and I'm like, hey, how about uh, you do a little guest hosting job for Back by Popular Demand, and you just ran with it. <laughs>
0: No quitsies, no take back. Here we are, uh, my friend. The seat, my friend, is warm. Right. I'm I am in it to win it. This uh this this is a very comfortable seat to be in. Uh, I'm telling my friends and neighbors I'm in uh, sunny Los Angeles. You know, because why not? It's my show and uh, that's where that's just where this thing is set for all uh, for all intents and purposes.
1: I thought Anchorman was the perfect movie for us to sort of uh, break format, as I've been telling, telling folks about this episode. So I mean that whole movie doesn't really have a format. It's all over the place. And I think this episode may follow suit.
0: Audience at home, you are not hearing the episode on deliverance. That was a, a slightly different conversation than what you were about to dive into. Uh, but feast your eyes on what is yet to come. Anchorman. Um, wow. Uh, as, far as, as far as my lifetime, I think it, it uh, definitely ranks in my top three comedies all time. I think it's hilarious. I think we're going to dive into why um, it's a very interesting kind of thing to, to break down because I think in some degrees it's polarizing, not just because you know big like you know we'll kind of break down why. But my wife, for instance, is like Anchorman. What do you? T-? It's like oh, it's a hilarious movie. It doesn't like farces. It doesn't like big over the top comedies.
1: As I started thinking more about it at the beginning of the year, I and I've mentioned this to you before. Yeah, and I mentioned it to Jason, and I've, I've mentioned it to my brother. When you run an episode as a host. Uh, as I do (laughs) on all the other ones. It's sort of a, it's really fun, but it's also really stressful because, you know, you're doing everything from all the prep, all the research before you even hit record, everything, right? There's a lot of work to it. Once you hit record, Nick, it really, it gets stressful because you've got your notes. You want to make sure you get your points out, but you want to listen to your guests. You want to make sure the episode is engaging. It's got flow. So like when you're the host, I don't think you really actually take the time to sit back and really just enjoy maybe the dialogue and the conversation as much as I think, you know, as you can as, as a guest. So I've had this thought for like the last couple of months that it would be a lot of fun to be the guest on my own show. And then I was like, all right, who am I going to, who am I going to get the keys to?
0: Going through the phone book, <laughs> going through all the A's and all the B's. I don't know. They all said
1: no. I don't know. There's no pressure, my friend, but I thought, yeah. you know what? Nick would love to do that. I know you've been kicking around the idea of doing your own show anyway. So I thought this might be a good little, uh, you know, test drive. Run. Yeah.
0: I'm at the, the CarMax. The guy, the dealer's walking me the lot. He's saying, I want you to test drive this uh, this beautiful BMW 5 Series. So this is going to be good for you. Hitting in the guest seat in your own show. Who guest seat that? in my
1: own show. I got a drink. Just like the guys in the movie, they drink the entire movie, by the way. Yeah. Are you drinking scotch? What are you drinking?
0: I mean, uh, it's 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 not scotch. I, I, I would love to say, yes, I'm drinking Oban. Uh, this is Jefferson Ocean. Big bourbon guy. Not a huge scotch guy, but famous... Uh, Scotch, scotch, scotch. I love scotch. Drink it, I mean, you should be drinking scotch when you're talking to Anchorman, of course.
1: You're not drinking three fingers of Glenn Levitt with a little bit of pepper and some cheese.
0: <laughs> Which is amazing.
1: This is your jam, man. So yeah. I'm going to ease back and have a lot of fun.
0: Well, this is back by popular demand. Um, I love this podcast, by the way. I've been listening to it obviously from minute one. I know intimately every episode. I actually do listen to the multiple times each week because I feel like if you listen to one of these things once, inevitably there's stuff you miss. Uh, you know, listen through once, and I will always catch like a nugget or two on a on a re listen. Um, so I'm thrilled to be able to host this. Absolutely love love the idea of it. I think the only thing I'm going to uh, switch out because I'm not Dennis Kamlick. Uh, I feel like it's, uh, let's throw in a little bit of fun on this thing. My, my thought with this, this is Anchorman, right? If I mention Anchorman to any one of my buddies, one of the first things that anybody always goes to is an Anchorman quote. It just comes up. Everybody does it. Everybody's got like five or six in their back pocket, which is probably something we're going to dive into. I feel like let's, uh, let's make it a little interesting here. I say this ep, we try and seamlessly throw in Anchorman quotes throughout the proceedings. If you can do it where it's not forced. Now, if you just go, if you just throw one in there and it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, no points awarded, sir. Uh, shame on you. But if you can do it seamlessly and it works, one point, and then we see who uh, who can get the most in tonight. What do you think?
1: So I'm already up then because I already threw out the the Glenn Levitt and the pepper and the cheese. I already am up one nothing, yeah. right?
0: Yeah, you already you're already uh, skunking me here, and we uh, haven't started. <laughs> I, I am impressed, but uh, yeah, we'll see. I also meant
1: to tell you that I had uh, I had ribs for lunch. <laughs> before we get into it because i think we're gonna just jump all over and i have a feeling oh, yeah but, like the first couple of minutes of that movie are hilarious yes. right because like it, they're all the, it's like over the credits right and yes. they're like they're showing all these like outtakes of ron burgundy on camera right and it's yes. usually like the stuff that he's doing in between you know the actual shooting when they're actually live doing reports
0: you're catching this aside of of Ron Burgundy, like, like he doesn't realize he's on camera, he doesn't realize he's being listened to, and it's just his, him and his moment, yeah, there's a lot of that.
1: There's, like, this looseness to things, right? Like, just, like, the overall, I think that's what's so great about the way that movie opens, it just creates this vibe that, you know, this movie's not gonna really play by any traditional rules, and at least for as far as a comedy goes, and... It's just so much fun. It makes you so comfortable. You just like ease back. And he's talking about having ribs for lunch, and then he's yelling at some woman named Audrey who must run <laughs> hair and makeup. And he's and he's like looking, and he's like,
0: "Oh, Audrey, that's bush
1: league, fantastic."
0: Well, I'm so glad great. you brought that up. I feel like the first. I feel like the first ten minutes of that movie does a really, really strong job in terms of really setting up what you're about to get into. Uh, one of the things I really liked about it is the opening monologue uh, of whoever the whoever did that wonderful narration. Uh, I feel like they build up this guy to be like this walking legend before you, you've seen him say a single thing. And then not only do they do that and pivots into him and you get the burgundy isms right up front. And you're like, oh, this is what I'm walking into with this guy. Then they do this wonderful job of going around the room and introducing you to the whole team in a way that's sort of like meet the crew. And they all have like, you know, so this is very McKay style thing, too, with the the quick quick immediate close-up to them and they get their little moment in there uh because he loves to break that fourth wall and this was his first directorial debut which we're going to get into uh but it was a really nice 10 minutes because we did we did figure out like right up front like what world we're about to step into this is 1970s san diego with this character who's kind of got so much bravado and swagger uh, that you're like oh uh, this is gonna be this is gonna be a really fun ride and then also the crew that he's with. And also like the, the narration at the bit makes you feel like now, you know, like a little bit of this legend before you even seem to actually do anything. He's um, like, they guy, got the guys with the voice is like Ron Burgundy was the ball. <laughs> I mean, how great is that?
1: <laughs> Fantastic. That's literally like two minutes into the movie. I, I, I know what you're saying. Like, I, I think the way, the way they introduce the characters really quick and they just sort of jump around and everybody gets their, you know they kind of look at the audience they look at the camera and they kind of speak to you it's yeah. very economical the way they they way they introduce everybody and you you you're like ready to roll in that movie 5 minutes in you start you're up and running and you know exactly yeah. what's going on right
0: right we're not diving into like boring exposition this is a this is a comedy this is a high octane comedy with with a joke joke per second ratio that's like just it is moving so quickly that they get right to the funny. They get right to the funny immediately. We're not going to get bogged down and like, you know, he grew up in this and he grew up in that, and now we're at the fun part. It's like it goes right into this guy is the man. Here's yep. why he's the man, and here's his crew. And then we get into, <laughs> we get into, you know, Paul Rudd naming his. We get we get we get all this stuff like right there in the first five minutes, and you know, like okay, this is where I'm in, and you're already laughing, you're already laughing, and then they start weaving an exposition. That was really smart.
1: When I watched the movie recently to get prepared for this episode, I, you know, I think the movie comes in at like a buck forty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about as long as it should be. And I would even say that movie probably could be shorter just the ending isn't very good. Uh, which we're, <laughs> which we're gonna talk about. We're gonna do. But, but like, I, I was monitoring like how much gets done. How, yes. like, just how much that movie accomplishes over just a very short amount of time. I mean, it's only a matter of like six or seven minutes, and already you're at that party. Um, yeah. you know, and Ron's work, walking around in some orange robe, and he's got his like little maroon pants, <laughs> underpants, and <laughs> his chest hair is all yeah. like puffy and not flattering, and like, he's yeah. just like he's got his dad bod right like yeah. just like it's just a lot of take in and it's just just hilarious but i never asked you i'm a little bit older than you as we both sure. have established how
0: did you see this movie in the theater sure did you did yeah i was 25 when i saw this um and I, in those days like if a big comedy was coming out i was still going to the movies to watch them i'm sure we're going to dive into that later as well but in terms of like is that something you still do anymore? If this movie, if this project was being greenlit today, would it happen on a television or would it happen in a theater? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I can speculate for sure for 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 days. We could speculate on it. Uh, but yeah, twenty. I, when I saw this movie, it was in the theater. Uh, it was actually on a on a date, and it was one of those things that is. There's a room full of people. It's a sold out theater, or at least it felt sold out. Everybody's laughing so hard, I actually fell out of the movie theater seat i was sitting in i literally fell out of the seat i was laughing so hard could barely catch my breath missed jokes because there's jokes flying in so quickly and it was like we got out of there like oh my god this thing's gonna blow up this is like this is this is huge absolutely loved it there's a couple things i want to unpack there
1: i i was older so i saw i saw it in new york city i was 33 i do remember um hearing a lot about it like from the trailers and all the promotion and I'm fairly certain that my buddy Patrick Donovan and I, who lived on the Upper East Side with me, I think he and I saw that opening night. I'm pretty sure we yeah. saw it on that Friday. Now, I don't, I don't see movies on opening night very often. It has to be a big thing. It's got to be like yeah. an Indiana Jones or, you know, a Terminator or something, something that I really want to go out of my way to go see on opening night. And even that, I probably would see it like on opening Saturday morning because I don't like being around a lot of people. I remember laughing. I remember liking it, but I don't, I don't, I don't recall walking out of the theater, like saying to myself, man, I just saw like one of the great comedies. And I don't even think, we'll talk about this later. I don't yeah. even think that everybody thought that that was one of the great comedies upon release. I think it found its, its life years later In over time, video, right? right? Home video, cable i think it became like a cult classic i think it became very quotable later when yeah. people saw it but like, to your point taking you know multiple viewings for people to really understand the genius of the script and the improvisation of the characters like there yeah. was so much to really take in that first view uh it, it's probably hard to kind of capture all that and
0: really sort of like appreciate it all so i think it took me you know what i attribute that to because i think you're right that's 100 was the initial reaction right most people uh, the critics panned it or said there was funny moments but they didn't yeah. think it was anything special and then they revisionist later when i said actually this thing really holds up and it's it's enduring and the character is still relevant it's funny and then they they eventually gave it its its flowers and, and liked it but at the time i really put a lot of credit to the fact that it was such a crowded theater and everybody was laughing yeah if you're in a room full of people all laughing at the same thing that's contagious and in my in my perception of that was, oh, this thing is hilarious. If I saw that by myself on my couch at, you know, 10 at night, and I'm just sitting watching it, I don't know that it would have jumped off the way it did because I was with, like, 300 strangers all laughing their heads off at the same thing. I think that played a lot a lot to do with the original. Yeah,
1: the, the shared experience of seeing certain films, yes. whether it be comedy or horror, which are probably the two genres that, you know, play the best to a large crowd. A large because, crowd. You know, when, when a whole crowd gets scared, there's something kind of funny and exhilarating when that happens as, as opposed yeah. to laughing at something. But I would say, going back to what you said about laughing so hard that you fell out of your seat, I can recall twice in my life Yes. See, I'm already having fun, Nick. I'm the guest. This It's different, man. Like I'm, I'm not stressing right now. Look
0: at you. This is non-stress, Dennis. Look at this. He got a drink in his hand.
1: I just need to have someone else host it every week. That's what it so, is. So, yeah. and I'm not even. I'm kind of half kidding. So, D- don't uh, go bring two-
0: Jason uh, Thompson in here to be your your guest host. Now that guy, since he's moving to Detroit, all that guy wants to do is sit there and listen to frigging uh, Bob Seger. My small crew of people that I have as my guests on the show is I've sort of found the crew,
1: right? I think all of you guys, and I mean this sincerely, yeah. all of you guys. Thompson, my brother, yeah. um, Newhauser, Saffon, all you guys would be phenomenal hosts. There are two movies that, you know, I, I personally would view as two of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And, and that gets into a larger question of which I do want to ask you about, like, has there yeah. even been a great comedy yeah. since, since Anchorman? But hold that for a second. But going back to the two movies that made me laugh so hard that I literally had tears in my face, right? One was... um I'm going to do them in order they came out. So the first one was Ooh. Austin Powers: International Ooh. Man of Hit Mystery, 1997. I remember Ooh. seeing it with my buddy Doug Corba and Dave Buckingham. We, the three of us, saw it, and I remember the scene when Doctor Evil does the speech, right? The famous speech yes. about you know when he was a kid and luge lessons burlap and meat helmets, and a, burlap sack, all that shit. Mark, Nick, when, <laughs> when he when he talked about um, luge lessons and you know meat <laughs> and, and meat helmets. I laughed yeah. so hard because, like, my I'm a big fan of Mike Myers, and like the the meat helmets thing was yeah. so hilarious to me that, like, five minutes later, when the movie kept playing, yeah. I kept thinking back about what I just heard in that scene, and I just kept laughing. I'm like, it I was can't hilarious. believe he just started talking about lose lessons, and that he was in a burlap sack beaten with reeds. You know, quite typical, really. Like all that yeah. stuff was was just to this day. Whenever I yeah. see that scene, hilarious. I had tears on my face. Jump a year later. And again, the late '90s, man. There's some good comedies it's there. Gold in that era. There's something about Mary now. So I oh, was wor- yeah. I was working. Twentieth um, Century Fox was one of my clients, and they they screened the hell out of that movie for like several weeks before it actually opened because I think yeah. they knew what they had and they knew that this was a really special movie. That people were just like just rolling out of their seats, laughing so hard. So they screened it quite a bit. Something they don't probably do nearly as much as they used to. But I remember going into the 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 MPAA theater in downtown DC to watch it for the first time. And I knew the Farrelly brothers, they had done Kingpin a couple years before. So I knew that they, these guys kind of pushed the envelope a little bit. And when the scene when when Warren comes out, you know, Mary's, you know, mentally challenged brother, I'll call it that. He's got I mean, his red staten jacket yeah. and he's holding the baseball and he's like, have you seen my baseball? And he's like walking baseball. around yeah. talking to people. He's like, have you seen my wiener? Like all that stuff. I yeah. and, and that's the thing of the genius about the Fairley brothers is they, they make you laugh when yeah. you know you're not supposed to laugh. You're not supposed to right. laugh at mentally challenged people. Obviously no. never get made today in the nineties. It did get made. And like, I couldn't help but laugh
0: at Warren because it was just hilarious. The actor who played him, the character itself. Interesting you bring that up, and we could do it. We could do a lot on the Farrellys, but what's interesting about them specifically on that specific point, they bring in a lot of the handicapped community in a lot of their films and they treat them really, really nicely. They're really good to them. And a lot like I'm I'm thinking about the one where uh, Kinnear and Matt Damon were uh were attached uh like one the twins that were like attached at uh the one body kind of thing but there's a lot of handicapped people in that movie that they were really nice to in it and the joke is always more on the idiots around them and like they're they're playing more like the straight man kind of role in there um so the warren Warren thing was interesting cuz like in yeah.
1: Are you supposed to be laughing at it? Where, where is it? Then they introduce Tucker. And he's got these two arm braces, right? right? And he's the guy that's got a secretly got a crush on on Mary. Mary. And this guy's a phony. He's not even the guy that he's portraying to be isn't even like the guy he is. He's a pizza delivery guy. And he comes into her office and he drops his keys and he's trying to like pick up the keys and he's got his arm braces. You remember? And he's like doing like the whole yeah. bend. And it's hilarious. And like and you're making fun of this guy that like is obviously not able to pick up these keys. I'm, so, I'm sorry, man, but that stuff is just like genius
0: comedy. Well, I'm glad it, you brought that up because this is actually a point I wanted to get into. And I think maybe now is a good time to even just start before we even get into too much of else of it. But a, a lot of it, like if you I think a natural question for something like Anchorman is could this movie get made in today's culture or to, today's climate for comedy? Because first of all, you think, well, there's a lot of jokes in here. Like the joke is these guys are a bunch of sexist idiots in the 70s. Right. The joke is on. They are the idiots. but in this culture it's almost like there's not there's uh, there's like this uh i guess in the current culture with comedies the, the the debate is whether or not it's okay to do a joke like this because the idea is like well are you just like giving a you know amping up with the these horrible uh, attitudes or, or whatever it is and then you're you're giving fire to it and and maybe the audience isn't laughing at how ignorant they are maybe they're they're just laughing at racist jokes, you know what I mean? Or, or whatever it is. And like, it could that get made? It's the same sort of deal with what you're talking about with, with other nineties comedies. Um, in the nineties, I feel like the culture was, yeah, you're, you're the joke is that these guys are idiots. So you are allowed to laugh at this. Um, and it was just, it was sort of just, okay. Well, I feel like in, in this, like a Michael Scott character in the office, I don't know if he could get, I mean, the Steve Carell flat out says like the office could never get made in 2023. However, it's like the number one streamed show still on, you know, everywhere that streams it. So it's sort of like, well, there's still an appetite for it. I would wonder with Anchorman, man, are you allowed to make it? Because these guys, this news crew did walk around the whole movie making like every other scene. There's somebody makes a, a racist joke or they make a sexist joke. Like pretty continually, and like
1: I don't think that you're supposed to agree with Ron Burgundy. His guys, especially when they first introduce, um, you know, Christina Applegate's character, and you know, and she, uh, Veronica Corningstone, and they're in the conference room, and Ed Harkin brings her in, and and then you know, Burgundy said something like, "What is this amateur hour?" You know, something like that, right? But I, you know, you as the viewer know that those guys are all in the wrong, and they they're just too short sighted to get it. If anything. You can look at that movie as an example of like female empowerment, right? Because like sure. it's a it's a great example of how this woman came into this male dominated world and she rose to the top very very quickly because she was better than everybody else, right? right. And I think there's even a line in the movie where Ron he's in the bar and he's drunk and I think it was right before he gets called back and he even admits that she's better than him, right? Yeah. And so I, if if you look at it through that lens, I think the movie is is could could get made today, right? But I guess the fact that it's a period piece gives it a lot of creative you know, liberty. Be- yeah, exactly. You're
0: making fun of the seventies. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think if somebody, if somebody pitched this idea today, if it wasn't made 20 years ago, somebody pitched it today, could somebody make Anchorman?
1: I think so. I, I think they, they probably dial back on some of the misogynistic humor. You know, there's yeah. a, you know, and I don't think the movie really, too too blatant with um, no. some some of that, but I do think that there are some jokes and materials that probably wouldn't wouldn't really either be allowed or would be tolerated by today's audiences, which are just a little bit a little bit different than even just you know 19 years ago. But like, yeah. is Man the last great comedy made? Ooh.
0: Well, I would I would whole wholeheartedly say no because I'm a I'm a huge fan of the genre. Um, but it is an interesting question because uh well oh, wait, so wait so so all right, so
1: you're saying no so yeah. what what is the last great comedy that you feel like has been produced by Hollywood since two thousand four
0: well i think I think the 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 my immediate reaction to saying no is because like right after this, like a year later, there was forty year old virgin and then there was you know knocked up, and there was all these other sort of comedies in the same sort of genre that I also thought were really really funny comedies so I just know immediately there were already projects that came afterward that that were. Um, I do think, though, to your I think what you're getting at with a question, though, I do think that the genre itself ran a course. And when that course sort of ended, uh, I think that I think there's a lot of factors that we can kind of probably dissect. But the idea, I think, is, um, you know, a lot of these things weren't going to screen anymore. And I don't know if that's, you know, because uh, of st- things going straight to streamers versus going into theatrical runs. Cause a lot of that long predates COVID. Uh, but it turns into like, I guess where like the money in movies kind of came from. Uh, I think if you look at something like Anchorman, Anchorman came out, it had a $26 million budget. It goes on to make like $92 million at the global box office. So I think at the time, the metric that Hollywood used was if it made $100 million, it's a blockbuster hit. Well, it wasn't a blockbuster hit, but it was pretty, pretty close, and on a $26 million budget, they made a profit. I don't know that that's true anymore, because in, when Anchorman came out, and when Knocked Up came out, and when 40-Year-Old Virgin came out, and everything that came after it, Step Brothers and all those movies, they had a DVD release that was almost like a second release of the film, Right, so like they would make whatever they make of the box office. They break open if they recouped, If they made ten million dollars in profit, it was okay because then they had the DVD release, and that's where they're making all their money. And it was a hit. And I think now with everything kind of being you know available right on the TV, the di- or or stuff just gets automatically baked into a Netflix subscription. I don't know that movies make the, mo- the money that they used to make anymore. So I think they're. I think that uh, you know, we, and we can kind of get into like where Hollywood shifted. I think that's probably well. Well discussed uh, a lot of places, but the, I think that the idea of like why why has the Anchorman studio movie with the studio release stop happening? I think that I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that th- those types of projects never even get considered for theatrical runs anymore.
1: Well, I'll tell you why when it happened. It happened when Iron Man came out. That's when it happened. Yeah. So, like, I mean, and I love Iron Man. Iron Man's yeah. awesome. It's my, I mean, I have, I admittedly have not seen many. Of the Marvel films, it's not my thing. But Marvel, I mean, that I was did. Good. I did love Iron Man. I thought it was a phenomenal film, and for many reasons. And I think that movie, as well as as well as it did, sort yeah. of set forth the whole Marvel universe. Right, everything started following up right after that. Really got out of control over the last ten years or so. And I think you know Hollywood. You raise a lot of great points and everything you just said. So I'm not going to necessarily poke holes in any of that. I think you know the hundred million dollar barrier or benchmark, I should say, was always the thing. But I think as they started making more of these, um, you know, popcorn, IP driven, you know, action movies, and they've made many of them since then, you know, the Spider-Man reboots, all of it. I just think budgets are way over a hundred million dollars to start with that. Yes, for sure. But obviously a a lot of money can be made on on home video and, and, you know, on SVOD and and everything else that's now coming after the fact that there's a lot of ancillary opportunities. But I think um, I just think today's audiences, for whatever reason aren't going back to what you and I were just talking about, like that shared experience of going to the theater to see a comedy. It doesn't mean that comedies aren't still coming out today. I mean, even Adam McKay who directed Anchorman, he, his last comedy was don't look up, which wasn't even released in theaters. It
0: was, it was in theaters for a week for Oscar. I was going to say say. it was
1: on theaters for a week. And then it was primarily on Netflix. And I I didn't particularly even care for the movie, but I think, I just don't think they're making comedies today. And I don't know why that is. If, If there's just not, a great comic voice that is, is, you know, architecting films like that today, you know, is it? Which is why
0: you're the perfect guest for this episode. Actually, I've got a perfect question for your wheelhouse. I hope. (laughs) Uh, So I think they are getting, I think they are getting created. The question is why is the general public not aware they exist? Now, what I'm talking about is, uh, so I watched a comedy Was I don't know if it was last year or the year before. Uh, John Bronco on Hulu that was starring Walton Groggins, and it was very much in the vein of a Ron Burgundy style over the top hero that you get behind. Go, but this was a straight to Hulu release, it was a Hulu original, it was a 45 minute movie, and it was very much of this kind of over the top comedy. But because it went straight to a streamer, right? It doesn't go out and it doesn't get the mega Blitz campaign right? Most of the general public does no idea this movie even exists. I think there's a lot of that. I think a lot of the movies like this old school anchorman, four year old version, all those types of comedies there, there people are still writing them. People are still wanting to create them, but they're not getting the same sort of industry attention. And so I think that like, I think that like most of the comedies of last year that existed, the general public probably has varying degrees of even idea that they even exist. And why is that? Is that is it because of the way they're marketed? Are they being marketed in completely different ways? Or is it because it's just on a, a streamer and it's just different budgets involved? Why, why is it that most people have no idea uh you know what the number one movie in the country is anymore?
1: I don't think they're necessarily being marketed differently. I mean, obviously there's still similar marketing channels. There's trailers and YouTube and TV spots and yeah and the whole deal. I do agree that, you know, I don't think they're maybe buying Super Bowl spots and some of these other high profile things like they used to. But I think part of the problem, Nick, is like the streamers, they've got these massive budgets to continue to feed the pipeline. Right. Yeah. So what happens is as linear continues to decrease in, in, in terms of usage and importance, that's a big part of what I do for a living. But I think, um, you know, the streamers have so much to make and they have so much to promote that they can't promote them all. Right. So like right. The, the movie you just referenced, I, I never even heard of that movie and yeah. I didn't and I didn't see it. Um so, like, I think what happens is a lot of these, even if it's good, even if it's a film or if it's a TV show or whatever it might be, a lot of this stuff gets lost um, in the shuffle because these, the Netflixes and the Hulus and everybody else, they've got so much to promote. One yeah. of the things I hear about, because you know, I've dealt with showrunners, I've dealt with talent through the years with with the work I do, and I think some one of the biggest complaints I ever get is that my show doesn't get the marketing that it deserves, or it doesn't get the marketing that I want it to get. I remember when we presented you know, the marketing plans for Genius uh, for Mm -hmm. season one and season two for Nat Geo, I remember Ron Howard actually saying that exact thing to us at a meeting where he was like, he was so blown away by the marketing muscle that we put behind Genius that he was like, this is the best marketing campaign I think I've ever seen. And he's like, and I've seen many. And he's like, I don't think that, you know, anybody's getting nearly, nearly the level of support that they used to. So I think that I think that's part of it. I think that there's just so much and it's hard to just break through. I just feel like in the last episode I had you on was for Top Gun you know, last summer when we talked about the first one and the sequel was about to come out. A week later, Top Gun Maverick was about to open and it would end up being just this massively successful film that sort of it's
0: what i hope for i mean obviously i was i was sentimentally attached to that movie but yeah at the time the question we i think we asked it on the episode was is that movie that gonna actually crack a billion dollars not at the box office not only to it crack it, it it was like finished like 1.5 it finished and, like fifth on the all-time domestic list. Of well, yeah, movies.
1: and I th- and I think what I was going to say is like it, it sort of saved Hollywood, right? Because yeah. like you know this is this is like Hollywood coming after after COVID, where yeah, the entire industry took a hit. You know, it exposed a lot of legacy businesses. The theaters closed, all these things, right? So like the the, the industry had to pivot quickly, um, and I think it's still pivoting. But Top Gun was proof positive that. You know, people, if you give people good quality content, they will come out. Right. Come and out. And, I, and I think that, you know, that's been been proven since then. If you give them a good film, people will come out. And I think what we're, we're just what we're not seeing today is like the level of going back to comedies. I just don't think that the level of comedies being made today, in the, at least in the theater, rival anything that we saw back in, in the late 90s into the early thousands. I think the last great comedy or two that I saw in the theater and I'm going back a while is is probably Juno. And yep. I would probably say like 500 Days of Summer, which is a comedy, but maybe even a dramedy because there's some, yeah. some serious elements to that film. But like those movies were like, what, you know, 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. And like since then.
0: It's a different era. You're talking about comedies from a different, I mean, even, recent era. But those were, that was were a long time ago. It's against very, your point.
1: Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I made a reference to, to my team the other day at the office and I, you know, I'm a lot older than them. And I said something about office space and, and yeah. some, and somebody said, um, what is that?
0: Didn't you fire them? You fired them on the spot, right?
1: You don't know what office space is. <laughs> and I was actually joking. I wasn't even joking. I'm like, seriously, you've never even heard of it. Never even heard of it. it huh? like I've never heard of it. I don't know what you're talking about unbelievable and and i'm like man that's like you really should go go check it out it's one of the great comedies of the late 90s you
0: should probably watch it you'll laugh how did anchorman come about anchorman starts with saturday night live in my opinion right i was going to ask you one of the things when i was researching with this for this episode (laughs) i assumed wrongly by the way that lauren michaels was a producer on this He's not right, yeah. He had nothing to do with this.
1: No, I always, I you know what? I didn't think that. I, I, I knew McKay. You probably know more about this than I do. I knew McKay came up in SNL, but I don't think I knew yeah. maybe how influential he was on, on yeah. SNL. But so I, I didn't, didn't think that, think that uh Lauren Michaels produced this. I knew that I knew this was a Judd Apatow film, but I uh he, a produced film, he didn't direct it, but I, I didn't think lauren did it no
0: i i thought they did and then it was wrong but i i basically because every other will ferrell comedy prior to this was a lauren michaels produced snl movie Uh, but essentially will ferrell and adam mckay became best friends when they both got hired the same time the year that they saved saturday night live nbc had basically in after season 20 wanted to cancel the show and there was this mass exodus. You had Phil Hartman, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, David Spade, Rob Schneider. This whole era all kind of leaving within the same season 20. And it was sort of like the ratings are low. And it'd be, is it is time to just pull the plug. They don't pull the plug. They hire Farrell and Adam McKay to be a writer. Within a couple of years, Adam McKay becomes the head writer of Saturday Night Live, the youngest in SNL history at age 27. Wow, I didn't know that. So he's this young guy and the reason what they attribute the success to, he and Will buddy up and they all of a sudden become this amazing team. He's writing sketches for Will, Will is delivering, Will is becoming like the face of Saturday Night Live in this era that now includes Molly Shannon. Now includes like Chris Kattan and like that whole wave of Saturday Night Live that re- grew the thing and it turned into a big thing again which is hard for me because I think my favorite era of Saturday Night Live was the one that had just walked out the door. (laughs) But this era came in and it it revitalized the show. Well, what it really did is Will Ferrell and McKay became this wonderful writing team. He did a lot of things, and we can kind of get into what makes Will Ferrell funny when he's funny, when he's not funny. But McKay was able to tap into what what Will did really, really well. And essentially, they always had grander ambitions so they're on they're at snl they're writing sketches that are hilarious but they were shopping scripts they wrote a script called august blowout that was supposed to be a, a car dealership show they were supposed to be Glenn Gary Glenn ross meets a car dealership and they're trying to shop it it caught the attention of paul thomas anderson <laughs> anderson's like i'm not gonna make that movie no way
1: i had no idea he was he was once attached to this movie that blows my mind
0: yeah wow. he loved them he was like there's something between you two guys you two guys are funny. You guys have a thing. Anderson goes on to do Boogie Nights. He does Punch Drunk Love and all those other things. So it'd be amazing to think like if his influence had stayed in with those guys. It doesn't. But he liked them enough that he's like, if you have another idea, I'll shepherd this. So he does. He agrees to shepherd it. And essentially, they... Uh, the, the story is that they basically, his involvement of it, they had something that looked like a Saturday Night Live skit. They had a version of the script that uh, had orangutans with ninja stars and a musical number with sharks, right? <laughs> 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 they had things that was like, Paul times it's like, that's weird even for me. I don't even know what, I don't even have to do with this. So like, it wasn't for him. Uh, they reel it back enough to absolutely make what they make. But he was instrumental in getting them to Apatow, who at that point was, he was like, I'm going to get out of being a stand up comic. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a producer. Right. So he's, he's roommates in in an apartment with Adam Sandler and Adam Sandler's hooking him up with the guy that is creating SNL shorts and SNL movies. And all of a sudden Apatel pivots out of performing and pivots into the business side of the house. And so he's like, this is his first shot to really get out and produce something. Um, You know, and all of a sudden they get, they get this, they get this thing greenlit through a lot of relationships and they knock it out of the park you know and i mean we can kind of get into like how that got made um whereas i think a lot of what it was was probably very similar to what they did on sound stages at 30 rock
1: there's a couple things there i want to sort of unpeel one is this notion of um what makes will ferrell funny right mm-hmm. and I, and i guess the thing that I always sort of regret is like, I think when Will Ferrell kind of hit his stride on SNL was to what you said earlier, I wasn't really watching it much at that point. Like I was more of a, you know, I was a late eighties, early nineties guy with Mike Myers and, those and Phil Hartman and, all those guys, man, Dennis Miller. That
0: was that was peak Saturday Night Live for me.
1: Yeah, that was just like I was in college, right? So it, it would make sense, right? Because we would watch it. But I think Will Ferrell. I sort of missed out on Will Ferrell. And I, I knew he did the cheerleader thing, and and I know that was a massive character. But like I I recognized that the guy was funny. But it, it took it took me. I was a little bit of a you know a slow burn when it comes right. to him. But like what what I think makes Will Ferrell funny? It's sort of the self deprecating humor, and I think Conan O'Brien does that really well too. But like. Will doesn't mind making fun of himself, right? Like there's yeah. an example, like the, one of the best skits I've ever seen on SNL is when is the cowbell, you know, you know, <laughs> when they're playing blue Horse the cult and he comes yeah. out and he's got like this, this tank top. I gotta have right? blue cowbell. <laughs> yeah. And he's got like this shirt on that doesn't fit. And his, Belly's hanging out and he's got these tight pants and he's banging the cowbell and you see you see jimmy fallon in the back and he can't even keep a straight face because he's like laughing the whole time hilarious right and then when and then when you watch like you watch anchorman and you see there's that scene when you know they she goes into his office and he's in there he's got his suit pants on i've,
0: I've got and he's very got, little time to sculpt
1: my guns right and he's got like no shirt and he's lifting weights and he's like oh that's a deep burn that's a deep burn <laughs> i
0: don't know if and you heard like, me counting i did over a thousand
1: Right. And he's like, you yeah, know, watch out for the guns. They'll get you. For
0: Nick, by the way, I guess you get a sort of, sort of get a point, but yeah. right. Yeah. You got to keep
1: scores. I'm not keeping score, but like that stuff where, when he's willing to like show his body, right. in the way that he does, right. which is not flattering, let's be honest. And it's like, he doesn't care. And, and it's, yeah. He just goes for the joke, and like not every actor does that, man. And I think that's what makes Will Ferrell so unique and distinct. Is just his delivery and the the the, the chances that he's willing to take as a as an actor, as a comic actor, and even as a dramatic actor. He's done some good good stuff with that too. So
0: you're 100 right about that. You really are because essentially, like he's he's in on the well, he's in on the joke. You're laughing at like the, he's playing. A, he thinks he's playing like this beautiful bombshell. Anchor leading anchor man, and you know what he actually looks like. He, he knows it. I would take it. uh I would agree with that point, but then add to it. Read the original. I think he's funny, and this is all my personal take on Farrell He does two kinds of characters, and one of them I find hysterically. I love it. I can't get enough of it. And one of them, I'm I, I'm a mixed bag on. One side of the house is, and this all has to do with um, how he, he how he plays uh, status. So if he's playing ron burgundy he's always at peak he's alpha dog right those characters that he does i always laugh at mckay wrote a sketch for him on saturday night live where he he parodied neil diamond and he played neil diamond almost identically to ron burgundy okay and it was hilarious right but i like Farrell where he's alpha dog talking down to everybody and he's full of confidence and he's He's the alpha in the room, and 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 that is that big time. Farrell to me, like he could do that in a million different ways, and I'm always going to buy it. The other side of Farrell, though, he'll try and do is Mr. Meek and timid, uh, and he gets pushed over a lot and walked, walked over, and that is a mixed bag for me. The only time that works for me is when he'll have like if he's doing a movie like with Mark Wahlberg the other guys, where he starts off as that guy, but then he'll get moments where he's like, you know, he's uh he goes back into his old like drug dealer character mode. And he's like, don't take no shit. Like I I gotta have that side of like Will Ferrell to make it funny. I can't just have him getting walked over and, and still think it's funny the same way that I can have him be Ron Burgundy and walk into a room and say like stuff at peak confidence. And that to me is very, very funny.
1: So how do you feel about a movie like Elf? Because he sort of yeah. is like in between in that film, right? Because he's like this very shy, inexperienced, timid character, Buddy buddy the Elf. But at the same time, very dominant in terms of like his personality. He's very outspoken and very loud and, and you know, not like yeah. Ron Burgundy necessarily, yeah. but certainly like just kind of dominates the screen.
0: And I'm glad you brought that up. It's a shocking take. Is I mean, and I consider myself a big Will Ferrell fan. I don't love Elf anywhere near as much as i love old school anchorman stepbrothers like i do like elf but i don't love it the same way i do those others because of that exact reason i don't my children adore buddy the elf they can't get enough of that i only like buddy the elf when he's a little bit more competent than when he's this pushover child you
1: know how to cut to the core with me baxter <laughs> I don't share your sentiment on Elf, but I but I I understand why that might not be as much of a draw for you because of the character he plays and I think what makes Elf work the most and I watch it every year cuz I I really do I really do enjoy it. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily just because of Will, although I think he's great in it, no doubt. Yeah. But I think it's it's everything else that movie has going for it. It's it's a great James Con. There's yeah, just is. like really good supporting characters. It's got a great story. It's got a lot of heart. Favreau
0: did a nice job directing it.
1: Yeah, Favreau just like it just all so, sort of just firing on all cylinders, and it's just a great more what I would call a we modern. Watch it every year. Yeah, I mean it's always on. Yeah, they they run it in rotation just like they do Christmas Story. You know, well,
0: it's interesting if you look at Will's Saturday Night Live audition tape it crystallized what he's super good at his audition taper, And he came out of like the usual at that point at, at Saturday night live, the feeder program to get into that was you did improv Olympic in Chicago, you did second city in Chicago, or then you'd go out to LA and you do stuff with the groundlings. And that was like the fodder system for Lauren Michaels to find the great comics to be in Saturday night live. Will gets his big audition after like a good successful stint with the, the groundlings. Um, he gets in there and he does like a bit where he's, <laughs> he's pitching cat toys to, <laughs> to uh, marketers to trying to sell like these cat toys. And he becomes like a, he's like an ad executive for one second. And then he turns into a guy like who's literally becoming a cat. And he's like, so razor focused and precise. And like, he is the cat playing with the scratch pad and, and this net. And, and it was hysterical. And this is like an audition. So like, you're watching him on like a blank stage doing it. And you're like, if you if you broke that down if you and i know some of it's like you're trying to like pick apart like th- this minute kind of detail but if you look at like what he's so good at it's like he can go from this kind of whatever kind of guy to like this razor focused razor intense sharp personality in such a quick split second it's just it just tri- strike you as that's funny because like you don't expect that out of this body type or this guy to do that. But he does it like on a light switch and it's very hard to do it that quickly. When you watch Anchorman to kind of bring it back to the film, I think
1: one of the things, what you just said is what I think when I watched that film is that I don't, I can't imagine Any other actor playing Ron Burgundy, right? Right. It's such, and I I know he's on the record saying that Ron Burgundy is his favorite character that he's ever played, and it's understandably. I mean, the guy is like this blowhard, and he's stupid, and he's funny, but he thinks he's great and attractive, and like, but it's like you know, and we'll talk about some of the lines, and we've already quoted a couple, but like the writing in that movie is so unique and so clever and smart, but like he delivers these lines in a way that like, I they're talking about diversity in the conference room, right? They're at the office. And someone says diversity and someone's like, what is that? And he's like, I believe diversity was an old wooden ship used during the Civil War era. Like, there's no other actor that can deliver a line like that. Like, it's it's just, and maybe there is. But, like, I highly doubt anybody could do it the way Will Ferrell can. The way he says, like, you know, I've got a, yeah, I've got leather-bound books my and apartment. my apartment smells like deep mahogany. Right? Like, <laughs> you're just, like, who? And,
0: and honestly, I think half that shit's probably freaking... Um improvised anyway. Well, let's get into that. I think that was another bullet point we were going to kind of dive into. Sure. That's, that's how this went down. I think that these guys, and, and what's interesting is I'm going to be interested in your take on this because you are such an outstanding writer uh, and you've written comedies. So what they did was a very, in my opinion, maybe I'm wrong. I think this is a very different approach to comedy than what you and other writers do, whereas they literally thought like, well, let's treat this like our... Uh, improv days or sketch comedy days let's get on the set and we've got an outline we've got some lines we have to hit and we're gonna let you riff and where will is so brilliant is because he can literally just come up with this uh come up with these different takes where he ad-libs and they give him free reign to do it and then the, the then the chores on the editor the editor afterwards has to figure out which one do you go with um and to the point that and not to get too far off a tangent but to the point they had so many outtakes they made a second movie they released with anchorman called the lost movie that came out the same year the same time it wasn't staggered and essentially it was all outtakes of the first because they had so much footage so many ideas that will just did differently take to take and not just him same with paul rudd and with uh Koechner and christine applegate and fred willard who's a master at improv like they yep. had all these people they did all these mobile takes and so they just created like a whole second movie because they didn't know what to do with all this footage was they thought hilarious yeah. right that's how they shot this movie the idea was going to be like well we'll just figure it out on set we're going to let you go and then he did and so when you say will ferrell's the only guy that could play this well that's quite literally right if you're talking about that way because if you cast any other actor That other, you know, that that changes what improv that actor is going to bring to the table. Who knows? Like he might not say diversity is an old wooden ship or rich man. And that's not going to happen. Like probably that's going to be only specific to Will. Uh, And other actors probably only would have gone with like the written word on the page.
1: Yeah and I think that's the Ab- Judd Apatow blueprint right you referenced yeah. um 40-year-old version and uh, yeah. knocked up I actually just watched knocked up again o- over the weekend I was channel surfing and I came across it and I ended up watching it and I think you know those are those are good movies I'm not sure if they're the last great comedies but they are they are really well done and I think apatow maybe to a fault is that he lets his actors riff so much you get you you will get those moments right you'll get those great bits yep. great material with jason siegel seth rogan the, the, jonah hill the way those guys play off each other you you know that stuff is some of that stuff's not scripted but i think the problem with some of that is that those movies a lot of his movies tend to go on for a long time Yeah. the knock on him is man you got to tighten that shit up you know it's it's yep. you know just doesn't need to be that long but i but i do i do agree with you like i feel like. I'm sure there was a blueprint screenplay for Anchorman that was probably very funny. But when you watch that movie, that movie feels like 70% improv and it just has a loose structure. Nothing, nothing really makes sense. There are sequences that don't really belong and the ending isn't very good. And there's a reason why that is because it was sort of reshot and they forced it in um, after test screenings on the original, but like, It doesn't seem to matter because it's Anchorman and who really cares at the end of the day. And it's so damn funny. And talk about a movie that had what a wonderful cast, right? Like, really, that's the thing that I take away. When I watch Anchorman, going back to your question earlier, could you make Anchorman today? And I don't even know if you could make it today with that cast. Because talk about those actors. all are all A-list, Right? Just like everybody's throwing fastballs. Everybody. in the I mean, at
0: the time, Paul Rudd, what was Paul Rudd known for? Clueless? Clueless.
1: He had done Clueless. He had done some romantic comedies. He had nothing of substance. Yeah. Like
0: this was a good role for him. He goes on from this. He does. He does other like comedies like Wet Hot American Summer. But really, like he goes on. He does Ant Man. He becomes like yeah, sexy People Magazine sexiest man of the year. Like he's a list guy. Like a list talent playing like the the sidekick. You know, and like, you know, like Steve Carell. Steve Carell did The Office the next year. He does uh 40 year old virgin the next year. Uh at the time Steve carell does Anchor Man. <laughs> at the time he said yes, he he was the the typecast anchor uh news guy because he did he was doing the Daily Show as a daily show correspondent. Nobody knew his actual name. And he was also uh he had a small role in Evan Almighty where he or Bruce Almighty where he was the the newscaster whatever who was a bit of a jerk. Um he gets, he does. So, so the, of course, that's probably why they brought him into Anchorman because well, that was a movie about the news guys. And you've gotten two or three other credits very, very much like this. Had no idea that he was going to be a year later. He was going to be like the face of a Judd Apatow comedy that was uh, goes on to be iconic. And the uh, the American version of The Office, which runs nine years, and everybody everybody for the rest of time will associate Steve Carell as Michael Scott. Bears can smell the menstruation. <laughs> <laughs> do you see what you did <laughs> now you're bringing bears into the office now you're endangering the whole news station <laughs> <laughs> i
1: mean what, here's what i'll say about steve carell in that movie because when i watched it again the other day it made me realize first of all his performance as brick talent is phenomenal but yeah. he's hard he's hardly in the movie and he's right? got he's got these little lines and like and i think they realized when they watched it that you know they underused him and yep. it probably because because he wasn't like leading man status yet right but i think john apatow wisely realized that steve carell was was like stealing every scene that he was in that movie and talk about like that that movie's cast is sort of like if you're watching like you know i hate to say it but like the freaking houston astros who beat my yankees every year like they you look at the lineup and these guys are just like one through nine they're just a bunch of guys that can take you down right mm-hmm. and like and in a lineup like that steve carell was probably batting seventh right? And he's like this great, great actor and he's he's batting seventh in a lineup and that's how he was in, in Anchorman. He just had like this throwaway little role and I think they realized quickly that this guy has much more capabilities than, than you know, a, a secondary character.
0: Yeah, part of the reason I think that, and you're right about that, they didn't know what they had at the time, but the other piece of that is the way he played it. Yeah. Right? So if he's going to play it, uh, or, or the way the role was written, I guess, whatever it is, like... Uh, they go on to say that he has an IQ of 48 in the film and <laughs> so, <laughs> and he goes on to be like a, a, exec, you know, a big uh, policy writer for the Bush White House and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, basically, the way he plays that, it, it's very difficult to say you're now going to be the alpha dog in this scene and you're going to steal. Like, he has to be reactionary. So if, if they're not if, if the cinematographer is not putting him on the screen for a reaction shot. Most of his work as an actor is not being put out to the audience because he's because Brick Tamlin is not going to be given like the the funny Austin Powers monologue about being uh, in a burlap sack doing luge lesson. It ain't going to happen out of Brick Tamlin like he's going to get he's going to get some lines like that. But those are written. I don't know how many. of the, I mean, I think some of what Brick did was improvised, but it was like literally just the this Will Ferrell style of just say what's in the room. Well, you're supposed to be acting right now. And here you are talking about well, you're picking out of your teeth. That's a Will Ferrell thing to just talk about. Really, what's right in front of him? So Steve Carroll did that. He's like, Steve Carroll. He's like, literally, he's like, Oh, I love, I love floor. I love carpet. Are you? Do you really love carpet? Brick? No, I, I love, I love lamp. Are you saying you love lamp because you see a lamp? I love lamp. I love <laughs> and he's literally just, he's literally just waiting in the room. But like, that's the joke of it. He's not gonna. He couldn't do much more than that. Like, if he wanted, if they, if they knew in the editing room, my God, he's the best character on set. Which I don't think he. W- I'm not saying that, but like, if if they thought that. There's very little else they could do to get him more into the movie than yeah. what they had, because he has to naturally be like that sort of like backgroundy ish type character. The most thing you do is say, like, we're going to put you in a fight battle battle sequence with four other news stations and you're going to throw a trident into, into his chest. <laughs> oh, and they did that.
1: <laughs> She's like, brick, brick, are you trying to invite me to a party in your pants? He's like, that's
0: it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's brilliant about that, too. Okay, so I've got a a side story that I was going to bring up that doesn't have a ton to do with Anchorman, but it does. Uh, So back when I was still acting for a living, uh, my agent sent me out for Lost, and originally I auditioned for Sawyer. Now, the script that I got for Sawyer had that as he was a a swarmy Wall Street guy with the slick back hair and the high powered suit, right? So I take this script and I probably read it the same way that like four or five hundred other guys read the script in the room. And I did my best like Wall Street guy. The guy they cast played it like a cowboy. He had the southern drawl and he's like uh, he's like this big like cowboy redneck guy. So I'm wondering if you're going to set up or you're doing the casting call for Anchorman and they're looking at all the different variations for Brick that they had because they had several others if you're going for brick and you look at that script and it says like, he's got an IQ of 48 and he's going to say absurd off the wall things. How do you think most actors played that part in the audition? Exactly. And how did Steve Carell do it?
1: He did it very differently. I mean, he he delivered like he's like a smart guy. Cause he's, he comes across yeah. really polished. Right. But he's an imbecile.
0: And that was probably, I mean, I think they probably would have cast him even if he didn't do a brilliant job in the audition that way, because he was, was famous for, Enough for Daily Show and for and, and being in some of the other companies as like a news guy, it made sense to put him in a smaller role like that. But the way he did that was freaking brilliant. And once they saw him, it's like, oh, you're going to play Brick Tamlin and you're going to use your actual voice with no inflection, and you're not going to play it like some kind of stereotypical Warren from Something About Mary. Yeah, that was brilliant. That was not that was not an obvious choice. If you're looking at a script and you've got five seconds to go in a room and read to a bunch of casting directors, that is not the choice that I would say 90% of actors would have probably made.
1: What speaks volumes about that material, and I, I have a feeling that this was one of those projects that every actor wanted to be a part of, right? And clearly, everybody sort of knew, knew each other, so was there was a, that there was a network, yeah. I suppose, but... You know, Fred Willard, you mentioned him earlier, like, yep. I mean, he was an amazing, amazing comic actor. Really is. He plays the straight guy. You know, he plays mm-hmm. the producer, his, you know, Ron's boss, Ed Harkin. And he's got some funny lines in there, but like, I'm a huge Fred Willard guy. I mean, I, yes. the, a mighty wind. His performance in A Mighty Wind, when he's like, and he's like talking to the camera and, you know, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but he's like talking. He's like, I coined the phrase, hey, what happened? And he's, like, he's, talking, happened? About, he's talking about that, like that failed sitcom that he made. And it was called What Happened? And hey, he's, he's K- throwing his tagline in. Right. And he's like, I can't do my work. And he's like, I don't think so. Hilarious. Hilarious. I will play that scene back. Whenever I come across a Mighty Wind, I will play that scene back and rewind it and play it again. It's like the guy was a genius. One of the things I love most about Anchorman is that, as I said this earlier, the movie sort of took on a life of its own way, way after the theatrical release. It's not like everybody walked out of the theater that weekend and they were quoting the movie the way it's quoted today. I quote Anchorman all the time. Like when I, I when I, too, when, I sure. when I come home at night, like if I come home from work or if I come home from the gym and I, my dogs are in the apartment, right. I'll be like, hello, Baxter. Like I <laughs> I will say that. And like, yeah. I, I, I will do that. I mean, like I, I'm, that's just one that just comes off
0: the top of my head right now. But sure. I mean, do you like, do you like incorporate burgundy into your like day to day? Like I do, I do for sure. And I think that there are certain things I say so much. Sometimes I forget I'm saying it because it's an anchorman quote. It's just, just a part of like, right. it's almost like my, yeah. I mean that
1: escalated quickly oh how about we play that scene
0: let's hear it boy that escalated quickly i mean that really got out of hand fast it jumped up a notch it did didn't it yeah i stabbed a man in the heart i saw that brick killed a guy did you throw a trident yeah there were horses and a man on fire and i killed a guy with a trident
1: Rick, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. You should find yourself a safe house or a relative close by. Lay low for a while because you're probably wanted for murder.
0: I'm proud of you, fellas. You all kept your head on a swivel, and that's what you got to do when you find yourself in a vicious cockfight.
1: You know what? Going back to what I said to you earlier, when I I liked Anchorman the first time I saw it, I liked it, didn't love it. But what it was for me when I watched it, I it must have been, I guess, HBO or Showtime when I watched it repeatedly sure. a couple years later. It was that scene when he's sitting there after the big fight. And first of all, the fight scene doesn't even make any sense. I mean, like It's, no, it's, it's a total it's, chaos. It's, it's hilarious. And they bring in Ben Stiller and they bring in Tim Robbins. And it's like he's smoking the pipe. And it's, yeah. it's like all kinds of like insane shit happening there. But when they cut back to Ron's office and he's sitting there drinking his Miller High Life, right? And he's like, that really escalated quickly, and then and then Champs like it kicked up a notch. He's like, "It did, didn't it? it really, like, did?" It's <laughs> hilarious. I was laughing so hard when I watched that in my apartment in New York. I, I think I might have had tears. I just found that so damn funny. And from that point forward, I became an anchorman guy. Like I was like, "Man, this movie, this movie's the shit." What what else? Like, what are the other lines for you? Like, what are the ones that stand out for you? The Brian
0: Fantana cologne scene.
1: Sure. The sex Panther. You want to play it? Yeah. Let's play it, and then we'll talk about it.
0: What cologne are you gonna go with? London Gentleman or wait. No, no, no. Hold on. Blackbeard's Delight. No. She gets a special cologne. It's called Sex Panther by Odeon. It's illegal in nine countries. Yep. It's made with bits of real panther. So you know it's good. It's quite pungent. Oh yeah. Ooh, it's a formidable scent. <laughs> stings the nostrils in a good way yeah Brian. i'm gonna be honest with you that smells like pure gasoline they've done studies you know 60 percent
1: of the time it works every time that doesn't make sense sex panther that's quoted all the time isn't it
0: i feel like so i have got a story a funny story uh, so i uh when i was in sales one of the first sales roles i had was in the sales training program uh at enterprise rent a car and i mentioned the i mentioned a quote from that specific scene i said after i said well 60 percent of the time it works every time and the guy (laughs) lost his mind was like what are you talking about That doesn't make any sense and it's like he clearly hadn't seen anchorman so some kind of my my thought is like this guy hadn't seen anchorman well i don't want to work for this idiot you know and so like immediately that guy was dead to me as a boss because like how dare he not watch (laughs) anchorman but, I, yeah, I'd say that, uh, the well, that's quite a pungent smell. Uh, kind of stings the nostrils. Uh,
1: Brian, i got to be honest with you, that smells like pure gasoline.
0: That is gold. <laughs> I certainly quote that to this day all the time. What
1: are you doing on our station's turf, Burgundy? You're about to get a serious beatdown.
0: I will smash your face into a car windshield and then take your mother, Dorothy Mantooth, out for a nice seafood dinner and never call her again. Dorothy Mantooth is a saint! Hey, hey, you understand me? Dorothy Mantruth is a saint! Hey, leave the mothers out of this, alright? I will take your mother,
1: Dorothy Mantooth out for a nice seafood dinner. Who talks and like that? I will never
0: call her back. <laughs>
1: seafood dinner is some funny shit. Like I still I still say that. Like a nice Dorothy Mantooth is a saint! Unbelievable. You understand
0: me? She is a saint. <laughs> Oh, so
1: good. I wonder, like, and I guess I would ask Apatow this if I ever ran into the guy, like, is the, the seafood dinner thing, is that, was that scripted? No,
0: it had to be David keckner SNL guy, very good at that. Kechner was also another one of those guys that came up from Second City and all those things, very good on his feet. We're going to do, we're going to do the scene six different ways. And then one of them, he probably threw that as an opposite, because, like, the obvious thing is to throw in, like, you know, what horrible thing he's going to do to Man Tooth. But instead he goes that route and it's hilarious because it's opposites. The opposite is, you know, I'm gonna take her out for a nice, <laughs> a nice romantic date, and I call it, like that being like the worst thing I can do to you. And like the Vince Vaughn reaction is gold. Brilliant, brilliant stuff.
1: We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the afternoon delight. Now's a good time for us to play one more clip. Let's play it here.
0: You really want to know what love is? Yeah. Yes. Tell us. More than anything in the world, Ron. Well, it's really quite simple. It's kind of like... Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight Gonna grab some afternoon delight My motto's always been, when it's right, it's right Why wait until the middle of a cold, dark night When everything's a little clearer in the light of day And we know the night is always going to be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite. Looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Rubbing sticks and stones together make the sparks ignite. And the thought of loving you is getting so exciting. Skyrockets in flight. Afternoon delight. You guys have it, I think. Afternoon delight. I don't know, Ron. That sounds kind of crazy. Sounds like you have mental problems, man. Yeah. yeah, you have mental problems, man. Yeah, it really does, man. Afternoon
1: delight. I mean, Nick, that that whole sequence doesn't make any sense. Like they're they're talking like they're talking about love, and he's talking about Veronica, and then all of a sudden they just start singing, and they sing it well.
0: What's amazing about that, in my opinion, and it, I've run into it in performing, like the when you're. Young in your performing career, anytime you get a scene where you're, like, you're going to do the dance scene, or you're going to do the song scene, and you don't feel like you're a comfortable singer or dancer, the obvious joke is you just make it really, really bad, thinking it'll be funny because it's really bad. How do you well you do it? But what ends up being funnier is if you actually sing it super well, but you're just not a singer. Or if you dance super amazingly well, and you're expected to be this uncoordinated mess, it's funnier if you're good at it. In this scene... Champ Kind is not a singer. You're not expecting Paul Rudd or Carell to be yep. singers. Will Ferrell, you're not expecting to be a singer, and kind of think he is because I think he, he had some sort of background. But what it was like, it was four guys. That you're not expecting to be particularly good at this singing, pretty good. They're in harmony. It's funnier because they're good at it, and they nail it. They nail this moment, and it kind of goes in line with the rest of the movie too because it's sort of this. Uh, uh, the rest of the movie is just sort of unpredictable, and it's this over-the-top farce, and we're breaking genres, and we're breaking all these sort of like different kind of like rules. It's not a musical, but now all of a sudden they're singing, but they're treating it like it's musical theater. Yeah. It works because everything else is so random. Like the randomness makes it okay that they're doing this in the moment, and because they're doing it well, it all of a sudden it's like this. It's like this really nice moment in a film where you're like oh my god i gotta refer back to this later is this really this wonderful thing they they nailed in the moment um and yeah they're not singers how the hell are they doing this what makes that scene
1: the best is like it's the directorial decision that's made because like did they sing it right and then they start talking again for like a second or two like they say something to each other and then they then they finish and then they're like afternoon delight. And then they all go back about their business and they like leave and they yeah, all go back smoking a cigarette. He's got to make a phone call, whatever it is. But like it's that last bit of afternoon delight that they bring it back to. Like that, that's the stuff that Adam McKay does in that movie that's really funny. I mean, like to your point, I mean, we didn't even talk about the whole sequence when he when he has sex with Veronica for the first time. And and they they go to this animated sequence and they're riding unicorns and like they're playing it's Tom Jones.
0: To <laughs> and it's it's crazy. Like what, what is happening here? He's, he likes that. I think McKay likes the idea of, like, we're going to break this fourth wall. We're going to do some really unconventional transitions. Um, this was his first directorial debut, yeah. right? But then he goes on he does it in his later films. He grows up, like, he goes into thing, but he still does it even in his more serious projects where he likes an actor looking directly at the camera or he likes, like, oh, well, now all of a sudden Anchorman's a, a cartoon. We have animation on the screen. And we're doing it again. He likes, he likes, we're going to do this jarring sort of transition. And what I think what bails out a lot of that is the fact that like the dialogue remains over the top funny throughout. Like if that was just a weird animation sequence, it'd be like, well, this scene's out of place. But then like look at the Corning, look at the Veronica dialogue through that. Yeah. Or the Will dialogue through it. And it's just like, I'm laughing just as hard through that as it was a scene just. Five seconds ago. He's like,
1: it's a most glorious rainbow. And she's like, do me on (laughs) it. Do me on it. (laughs) Wait, wait. I want to talk. Um, you just made me think we we didn't talk on this, and we really need to. Adam McKay, I he's gone on to do some really interesting films. And I will say that the big short, which I want to say came out, don't quote me on this, like 20, 2012, 2013, somewhere around there. Um, the, one of the greatest right. films I've seen in the last decade. And I would actually say why that. Do you that say, movie, why do you
0: say one of the greatest films you've seen? What was it about that you thought was like pinpointed makes it the Well, greatest?
1: first of all, it's a Mike, based on Michael Lewis' book, and I'm a big fan of Michael Lewis. Um, so, that in and of itself, the source material of The Big Short is, is phenomenal. But I think yeah. the way. The way he directed that film, first of all, he had a murderer's row of a a cast. I mean, he had Christian Bale and everybody. um, There are some really great actors in that film. But I think that movie, that movie is one of those movies. I I own it. um, I bought it. I have it. But when I come across it, when I travel, I don't know what it is about the big short, but it's always on Delta. Like whenever I'm flying, that movie is always on. And if I come across it, I usually watch it. And I've probably seen the big short 15 times. Yeah, over over wow. the last over okay. the last decade, I I think that movie is smart. The decisions he makes in it, the way he directs it, he adds this element of like levity and humor, and the yeah. way the Brad Pitt character is portrayed. Like, there's just some really great pieces. If you're out there and you're listening, and you have not seen The Big Short, or maybe you saw you're in one, for a treat. you got to go you it. need to go back and watch it because it, it was really Adam McKay sort of you know evolving and maturing as a filmmaker. I mean, obviously, look at the work he did in, in Anchorman, which is very. Very clever and smart, but pretty stupid. But right. like he really takes his he takes his game to the next level with, with the big short. I think he's tried to replicate that with some of the other films he's done since then, like Don't Look Up and and Vite. Absolutely. And I, I don't
0: think it. either of them are nearly as, as strong. But um a talented guy. And I would ask, is that because he adapted big short versus an original screenplay? His original screenplays are harder to do than he adapts somebody else's book, whatever. It could be.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, but the fact that he and I, we should probably talk about, um, you know, the producing partnership that he and Will Ferrell have because they went on to do a lot of work together. They, they filmed their production company. Um, What is it? Gary Sanchez. Yeah. I mean, those guys are executive producers of Succession. I mean,
0: and what's funny about you mentioned that. So, Succession, like, yeah, they are executive producers of it. My first thought when Succession was coming out, and obviously now we're right now we're very currently in the last season and it's the it's the show everybody's talking about. It's a water cooler show. Yeah. When a succession was first being announced, and it was going to come out. I saw that it was a Gary Sanchez production project and I saw the Will Ferrell and and I, I couldn't help but immediately assume it was going to be a Will Ferrell comedy. And then I realized after watching the the pilot, oh, well, I guess he's a producer. I guess he has nothing to do with it because I'm thinking to myself, I don't see a fingerprint on succession at all. Nope. It has anything to do with Will Ferrell. And that kind of... It, I mean, to bring it to what you brought up. So with Gary Sanchez, where it started, it started on Anchorman. That was their first project in that. And they, and they rattle off a lot of comedies very similar to Anchorman. Sure. But somewhere in there, there's an undercurrent of... I think it's coming from McKay more so than Will. And this is speculation. But I think it's coming more from McKay where he wants to make more serious projects. Right? So he does... They're going to do the other guys, which on the surface is a buddy comedy, a buddy cop comedy with two cops, uh, the Mark Wahlberg character cop and Will Ferrell as the the meek cop, whatever. And but then if you look at the and I'm not going to spoil the ending, but the ending of the film was like, oh, well, this is there's a deeper agenda uh, to this comedy that obviously like was a lot smarter than, uh, you know, like uh, the ending to Step Brothers or Anchorman. <laughs> um and McKay, I think, was responsible. And then, then McKay goes on and he does, to your point, he does Big Short. Obviously, that was a project pretty passionate to him. And then he and he does what Vice, and he's you now he's an Oscar darling. Yeah. Um, and I think he only wants to do those sorts of things. So when what he wanted to do with Gary Sanchez as they evolved, and they did a lot. I mean, after Anchorman, they did a lot of comedies like it. I'm not trying to say they immediately pivoted, but at some point in the in the relationship. Adam wanted this thing to pivot to expand to a lot more broader topics, and what he was trying to do was attach himself to smarter, more serious projects. And I think every time Will tried that earlier in that, he hadn't had the same kind of success. It was a lot harder yeah. for Will to make that transition, and for Adam, it's like, well, no, let's do like a lot of more serious stuff. He's getting award consideration, and then you know all of a sudden, like, yeah, he's a producer on Succession. Will's response to the media at the time was like well that sounds like a lot of things i have to keep track of yeah like i don't want to go see a billboard and say like oh i'm producing that now and it's like well why wouldn't you want to be producer on the the biggest hit hour-long drama of, on tv right now and it's probably because like he, from his point of view that's not his wheelhouse his wheelhouse and
1: i think mckay even directed the pilot i want to say if if memory serves but i think it's funny though because like the irony of that is I don't think a show like that gets made without Will Ferrell and Adam McKay's names being attached to it, right? You got to like, have both you, those names. You have names. to assume yeah. that that was a, probably like part of part of the package that got that over the finish line with HBO. Is that these guys are going to be exec producers? They're going to lend their name to it. I'm sure that was in the marketing for season one. I don't remember what the ads look like, but I guarantee you know they probably dialed the Will Ferrell Adam McKay piece up quite a bit. They did. And, uh, that's
0: how I, that's how I first came on my radar. Cause yeah. like I'm big, I'm looking for those two guys. Right. And so yeah. they, they were marketing to me to say, this is a Will Ferrell, Adam McKay project.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. Cause like, I feel the thing I remember when I watched last year, when don't look up came out on Netflix. Um, it was a lot of fanfare about that. Cause I knew that it was an Adam McKay film. So I clearly was, was intrigued and it's DiCaprio and a, a pretty amazing cast and obviously a lot of heavy hitters, but like, I didn't really care for it. I thought the movie was, was actually really bad. Really, that the thing, the thing I said to somebody, it might have been even been Lance. I texted Lou Hauser and I was like, "It's Adam McKay trying to make an Adam McKay film." That's what I said.
0: Well, it was, but is I mean, you wouldn't have the same criticism for like Quentin making a Quentin movie. I think
1: Quentin's done that. I think, I think, <laughs> I think the Hateful Eight was that. So yeah. you know, listen, everybody's allowed a you know a misfire. I'm not going to be a jerk about it, but I, I just sort of felt like, man. It was the first time that I saw an Adam McKay film. where I realized I think he was trying too hard, and it just felt it just felt so obvious.
0: But again, I I might be in a in the minority on that. And I mean, I had the rose colored glasses on when I was watching. Don't look up because uh, to your other point about some of his other projects, like it also had the all star cast of all star cast. It has DiCaprio, it has Meryl Streep, it has all these things. And it was like, okay, well he's got he's got all the a listers out. And I feel like at the time, the criticism that it took to me. And I don't want to go down this road at all, but to me, it seemed like if you didn't like the movie, it was political. Yeah. If you liked the movie, it was, it'd be, it was your side of the aisle and it, and that was it. And it was like, I was annoyed that he would make a movie where that was the deciding criteria of like, oh, is it, does it support my part of the algorithm or does it not? If, if it does support my part of the algorithm, I love it. Or those when I'm programmed to hate it. And I thought like, well, just do what you do, man. Do what you do. Like the key, he makes smart movies. He makes smart choices. I think it's. I think one of the things, if you go to film school and you say like you're gonna have actors look directly at the camera and break the fourth wall and say thing like, well, you gotta you gotta be very strategic how you do it. And he does he does it well. He does it well where it serves the plot, it serves the story, keeps you bought in, and you're like, well, so he's a talented director. Like that's not an easy thing to pull off. When he did an Anchor Man, it was sort of silly and, and throwaway. But when he does it in Big Short, it was like. I'm going to slow the plot down and tell you this really important piece of information that you might've like lost over. And it was like, uh, it was like, it was a unique way of sort of doing it. He's a talented guy.
1: Do you go back to big shore and you see Steve Carell in that film? Yeah. Um, and I, and I want to say, and I'm not sure if this is true. I, I think he was nominated for an Oscar for that. I want to say maybe he was up for supporting actor. I think um that movie was up for best picture i'm pretty sure that yeah it
0: was best picture nominee he
1: his performance and the big short i mean people i'm telling you go back and watch that film again
0: on a weird meta level so mckay has him as brick tamlin in the closing credits of anchorman say he's well he's a part of the bush white house that's right and then he goes and makes vice
1: <laughs> right
0: and, and steve carell is playing rumsfeld i guess <laughs> And yeah. it was like, yeah, he actually it's like it's was, it was one of those like one Tarantino moments with the Vincent Vega, Vic Vega kind of connection of like the later projects all tying into the earlier projects and all that. I like that. But I think what's sad about that whole deal is how it ended. Right? Because it seems like and this is outside, I'm not friends with either of these guys, but from what it sounds like from all accounts is in the nineties and like 95, these guys didn't know each other prior, but they had similar backgrounds. They meet in 95, they go to SNL and they go in this like meteoric rise to success and they're best friends. And they intimately a part of each other's lives and their families. Um, you know, and they start this Gary Sanchez thing and it goes so well. And, you know, the, the whole time McKay says, like he tells him the whole time, like, let's not be the behind the music episode where <laughs> things just went shitty, right? And then it happened.
1: Yep, it and sure the did. the reason
0: why it happened is like a little bit, like they've kept some of it closed doors, but was super public. It seems like at one point, McKay wants Gary Sanchez Productions to expand beyond the Step Brothers type comedies and Anchorman comedies and get into succession and all these other types of shows like it and he wants to produce all sorts of other things and he wants to go and and chase awards and credit and all that. Will wasn't as into that so he thought we'll dissolve this, but we'll still but at the time it was it was like super positive. It was like we're going to be creatively connected and work together and we're still going to be best friends for life. And then McKay uh gets this deal with HBO, this like five project deal with HBO and his first one is winning time. Yep. And a role that they had probably talked about for, you know, whatever length of time that when since the book came out and he got the rights. And, and Will has, I guess, behind closed doors, told Adam, I really want to play Jerry Buss.
1: Yep. He would have been great.
0: And then the way Will finds out he's not going to do it is because John C. Riley calls Will up and says, hey, can you believe it? I just got cast as Jerry Buss. Unbelievable. And then will tells adam mckay have a nice life
1: <laughs> exactly
0: right and then adam mckay goes out and says i fucked up i should have handled it differently i should have done above board i should have done this but in the same apology he says i should have done all these things but also and he brings up like four or five points that will never apologize for in their friendship which like <laughs> i don't know i don't know in your history but uh when people are apologizing to you you know how do, how do you feel when they also throw in like four or five things that uh, you didn't apologize for?
1: Exactly. <laughs> like,
0: like, you know what I mean. Like it, it ended the way it ended.
1: John C. Riley was supposed to be the original champ kind, right? He was. I think he was first cast, and then he ended up choosing another project, and he went off in another direction. Nick, I've got a, I got a little like warm take for you. Yes, I, I, I think, and I, when I was watching this the other day, and I, I know this guy came along a couple years later, so maybe his moment wasn't there yet. But like, I think Danny McBride, who ended Love up becoming that. a pretty big, you know, character actor, I should say, in the Judd Apatow film, was a little bit later. But like, he—can you imagine how freaking good Danny McBride would have been in Anchorman? Well, yeah, give him anything in Anchorman. Anything. Would, I think he would have been great in anything in that film. But I think he could have been a really good champ kind, though. Just thinking about him, like saying "whammy" and stuff. I think because he's whammy. so he's so sleazy and like you know, he's just got that like. You know what I mean? Like he's oily and dirty and he's got that, the hair. Like I think, oh, I, yeah. think he, I mean, it would have been a little bit of a different take on Champ Collin, but I think not a good, not a better or worse take, but just a different take. And I think well, uh, it would have been that's good. That's
0: true, but you've got to go back to the earlier point that we said. A lot of this was done with the actors in the room improvising in the moment, Yep. right? So a lot of what you see as Champ ain't going to be what Danny does with it. <laughs> Danny, I guarantee you, Danny wasn't going to go down the road of like, I miss your, you know, the the pancake breakfast. Of course, Ron's going to be there. It's the pancake bre- breakfast. I, I'm, I'm a mess without you, Ron.
1: <laughs> All right, now we got, now we got to play that scene as well. <laughs> you got to
0: play it because let's, let's play. Be it. That way. <laughs> so. Ron's not coming. No, Ron's coming. It's the pancake breakfast. We do it every month. I realize that, but sometimes you just got to look yourself in the mirror and say, "When in Rome." The bottom line is. You've been spending a lot of time with this lady, Ron. You're a member of the Channel 4 news team.
1: That's a given, that's a given. We need you. Hell, I need you.
0: I'm a mess without you. I miss you so damn much. (laughs) I miss being with you. I miss being near you. I miss your laugh. (laughs) <laughs> I, miss, I miss your scent I miss your musk When this all gets sorted out I think you and me should get an apartment together Just Take it easy champ
1: Why don't you stop talking for a while Maybe sit the next couple plays out You know what I mean Yeah I'm gonna quit saying things when they crop up In the old skull huh Hey, champ, why don't you stop talking for a while? He's like, what do you, you sit the
0: next I couple of plays around? <laughs> I don't
1: think I remember, like, when I first watched this movie, I don't think I remember that that whole, like, homosexual undertone of Champ yeah. Time was is, is very apparent to me. Like, I think it, it took repeated
0: viewings before I realized that that's what they were doing there. Like, that's, I don't know how I missed it. Well, the problem with that is now in 2023. That was the joke. Sure, was, wouldn't it be funny if Camp Kind was a homosexual? Exactly. Yeah, and like in, in twenty twenty three, it's like what the what do you mean? It was funny too if you if you sit through the the lost movie that they put out. He does another one of those scenes. Does he? He goes into a car, and the gag is he does that for probably four and a half minutes of of that kind of like extended awkward. And the joke is how awkward it is, and what he's putting into Ron, and Ron saying like the. Paul Rudd's driving the car at the time they're in, and and he's like, "Oh, so this car gets oil changes, whatever." And like, and then literally, it's Champ Kind doing four and a half minutes of like how much he's he, he wants to be with Ron. And in two thousand four, th- that was pretty freaking hilarious. And it is.
1: Is there anything else? Any parting thoughts? Any parting
0: shots on Anchorman? I guess the last piece we didn't really talk about is the fact that like they walked into set one day with a with one idea for how this movie ends. Oh, that's right. We got to talk about
1: this.
0: (laughs) And then they completely toss that after they've shot the whole film and go into reshoots and create this whole different thing. So, I mean, I guess like the question I would ask you is, you know, what are your thoughts on, on the surface? You're watching Anchorman for the first time. What are your thoughts on the ending?
1: Yeah, when you watch, and I said this to you the other day, like when you watch Anchorman, what, movies, like I said earlier, it's a buck 40, right? So you're, you're watching that movie, and I would say for a good hour 20, that movie is firing just like it is on like it is yeah. delivering it's fast the lines are great the performances are great there's really no like moments of like where this movie's like going off track right but they but you sort of get the sense that they ran out of the premise and i didn't know this when i when i until recently when we started doing research on this on this podcast that like the the original ending was tested terribly they did focus yeah. groups they te- they re- they recut it they reshot stuff and that's what led to the whole panda bear ending at the zoo which yeah. it does feel like when you watch anchorman today i hate to say it but the ending sucks the ending isn't very good it's not very <laughs> funny she's you know she you know she falls into the bear trap and he jumps in like it's just not very clever it, it doesn't match the wit and the and the the brilliance of the comedy of all the scenes that lead up to that it's just like big it's a big drop and it's yeah. it feels like a very like hollywood you know by the numbers kind of ending. And I didn't realize that that's the reason because they rushed it. They had to reshoot something they dropped it in and it just doesn't work. And it and I guess it's like, it's, it's like an, it's, for me, it's like an ape. It's like an A comedy that probably becomes an A minus because of that. Or, you know, and I hate to say right. that, but I, I, do, I do really do feel you got to knock off a couple points off that movie because that ending is just not very original, but it is, it is pretty great when they, when they cut to, uh, when they when, to your point earlier, when they talk about all the characters and what they did next, and they show Brick
0: in the bear pit and he's being tickled
1: by the bear, hilarious.
0: It's, it's interesting that they they would toss out so much of what they had already had in the can. Yeah, because this lost movie focused so much on the alarm clock burglars and these actors, like all of that stuff is like, well, we'll just make an alternate movie and throw it out because because uh, what do you do with it if you if you're not going to release it in the original cut of the film? Sure. That's crazy. Like, I can't imagine how many comedies or how many movies in general do you have so much alternative footage that you can do that with? I don't want to spend a lot of time
1: on it because it's not worth it. But, like, talk about a sequel that was just a massive disappointment. I mean, I I personally was very excited about Anchorman 2, and I remember the marketing. And the best thing I could say, and I, remember, I actually remember saying this, and I may have even said this to you, is that the marketing campaign for Anchorman 2 was better than the movie Anchorman 2.
0: <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, well, b- 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 because people were excited about it, which was interesting because the way they shot the original movie, the perception at the time was if we put Ron Burgundy in a circumstance, it'll be funny. If we get Will in a room as Burgundy, it'll be funny. And that's sort of the idea they went into it with. And It was like, what I mean, I don't know how many years went by, what, 10 years between Anchorman 1 and Anchorman 2? And by the time they went into it, it was sort of like, just throw them in there, and we'll do the same thing. And it's like, well, it doesn't always work that way. I mean, the the part of the risk, the risk-reward of saying we're going to rely on the improv, when it works, it's, it's so good. But when it doesn't work, it's like, why didn't you get some writers in there and put a decent script together? I I
1: didn't look, I mean, I don't spend any time on film sets. You've probably been on a few more than me, but like there's this element of like magic, right? Like when a movie right. like that, when a movie like Anchorman is being made, I think the people that are making it sort of know in real time, even if they had to reshoot some stuff, like I think they know that the material that they were getting is just, is, is special, right? It's yeah. just special. And I would say the same thing. I bet you, I bet you the Farrelly brothers felt the same when they did, when they made Mary and I bet you, you know, um, Mike Myers felt the same when they were, when they were making Austin powers, like there was just something there. You try to replicate that sometimes. And it just, it just goes to show you, like, it just doesn't always work. You could try to bring back the same people, the same actors, the same writers and whatever. You just can't always capture that spirit again. And they didn't dude. You did a nice job tonight. I think, um, I think I probably won with the quotes. Cause I, I don't, think you did, <laughs> I don't think you did a lot of lines at all. I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed.
0: Well, go in there and go and re- review the tape. I think I said
1: a few. You're going to go back and listen to this episode four times. <laughs> I probably will. I know you will. You don't even probably will. You definitely will. You'll well, I got to
0: at least see it on Spotify and then I go to the iTunes podcast. Those are the two that I got to see. And then, uh, you know, and I'm also like if I'm trying to jog around the neighborhood, I'm not trying to do it without a podcast in my ear.
1: I appreciate you uh, taking the reins tonight and uh, taking us in. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. And I will tell you, I'm, I'm serious. If there's a different vibe and there's a different energy as the guest, I'm telling you.
0: I know it's true. I, I could tell it because my, my perception of being a guest on the top gun or even on the episode where we came in and talked about like our list for video village. Yep. Like I had my prep, but it wasn't the same as like you have a show that you're trying to run. I'm thinking like, I'm going to get my stuff in to your show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's a different vibe. It is a different vibe than when you're the host. It's like, well, I gotta, I gotta like make sure all of this goes this way, sort of vibe, and it's a different level of stress. Yeah,
1: it was funny, like doing this tonight with you. Like there were things that you said that I actually grabbed my pen and I wrote down. I was like, I want to, I want to kind of go back to that and, and and revisit that. And I don't maybe not, I do that when I host, but I don't maybe do it as often as I host because I'm too busy. Like making sure that I'm covering off on the next thing that I want to say, you know, like there's, yeah. there's a flow, there's an agenda, there's a run of show that you build out. At least I do.
0: Well, dude, every, every look at uh, like the segments that we built out, we talked about every one of them.
1: So this means that you're going to edit it as well, right?
0: Well, I would love to be a part <laughs> of the editing process. I don't think it, I don't know how that would work, but I would love to do it because if I'm going to do my own podcast with these knucklehead neighbors, I would love to know, I'd love to be at least a fly on the wall for how you do it.
1: Editing is a very bittersweet thing. It, it's something that you need to do it. It's actually yeah. essential for an episode. Um, you sort of find the episode inside the editing, in my opinion. Yeah. But it's very time consuming. It's extremely time consuming. Um, you got to like really focus on minutia and little things that you can take out. But at the same time, it allows you to really like put your hands on it and get into the weeds. And there's something really fun and very liberating about it. So I hope you do learn it because it's, it's a lot of fun. This was awesome. Thank you.
0: I've had a lot of fun.
1: I hope you might want to do it again. Start thinking about another movie that you would want to do
0: it for. There's other movies that, like, if you wanted to go down, that I would. I mean, obviously, this version of the show is something I can contribute in. (laughs) I'm not a marketing exec. I have nothing to bring to the table in the other ends, but like, this is a lot of fun with what we do. This. This is a lot of fun.
1: I hope your your peeps and your community and everybody down there in Florida likes it. You're probably going to be the big man on campus like Burgundy for a couple of weeks. But this, I bet,
0: I'm going to stroll out in this suit, like uh, on the when we're going to what we do in the neighborhood every five. It was it turns five o'clock. We go out and we do happy hour in the cul-de-sac every every night of the week. And like we all throw out, me and we all bring out our little coolers and we <laughs> drink beer. All the guys are buddies, and Love like it. all the kids are buddies. All, all that stuff, and, and we bring it up. So I've been talking about this thing
1: <laughs> for quite a while. Tell everybody to listen to it. Tell them to tell their friends to listen to it, so we can get some yeah. more. We can get some more listeners, man. I, I'd appreciate that. It's always good to, to get more more downloads. But uh, well, listen, dude. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of you. Love you very much. Um,
0: thanks you too, for uh, thanks for making the time. Well, thanks for giving me a shot at this too. Like you don't you don't just throw throw in uh, hosting the show to other people. So I mean, it, it's not lost in me that you did that, and obviously carries a lot of weight. <laughs> I feel like every every meaningful career thing in the entertainment industry that I've done has been directly attributed to you, and this kind of just is another another piece of evidence to to the point and. It means a lot that you offered it. You didn't have to do it. You could have just said, hey, do you want to come in and talk about whatever? And you didn't. You said you want to host the show. And that's, that's, there's a very clear distinction. And I appreciate that.
1: Nick, I'm here to check as many life boxes for you as I possibly can. (laughs) That is why I'm here. (laughs) And if if, if that is my legacy, that's a pretty damn good legacy. Phenomenal legacy. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, I always appreciate the support. We'll have Nick back on either as a host or as a guest at some point, I'm sure. Uh, Next episode, I think is going to be Moneyball. With uh, speaking of Michael Lewis, because we just talked about him a little while ago, another Michael Lewis uh, book uh, that I'm a big fan of. And we're going to have Lance Neuhauser on uh, sometime uh, in probably, I would say, June to do the Moneyball episode. Moneyball, another film that I've watched way, way too many times o- o- over the last decade. I am a massive fan of that film and there's much to discuss on that film. So I'm looking forward to having Lance back on the show. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for your time, Nick. It's a pleasure and uh, we'll see you soon, buddy.
0: All right, buddy. We'll see you out there. And that, of course, was our newest reporter, Veronica Corningstone. She's really great. I'd also like to share with you that we are currently dating and that she is quite a handful in the bedroom. Uh, well, that's going to do it for all of us here at 6 o'clock. For the Channel 4 News team, I'm Ron Burgundy. You stay classy, San Diego. All clear. Uh-oh. <laughs> I might be in trouble on that one.